Welcome to the Geek in Review. Ooh, what happened there? Welcome to... <laughs> My voice is changing. <laughs> that, that happens when you turn 15. <laughs> That's right. Welcome to the Geek and Review, the podcast focused on innovative and creative ideas in the legal industry. I'm Marlene Gaybauer. And I'm Greg Lambert. So Marlene, we've got a, a couple of birthdays to celebrate this week. We I do. know yours is uh, coming up a little bit later this week, but uh, believe it or not, I was I was just curious this morning because I knew it was coming up, but uh, the pod is four years old today. Isn't that amazing? That's just crazy. I know. I know. I was just talking to somebody this morning about this and was saying that it's it's four years old and they're like, really? It's really been that long? I was like, yeah, it has been. And uh, I feel like we have have really grown into this. And as I was saying in my conversation, you know, we're going to continue to grow. We're going to continue to look at new things and bring on new types of guests, uh, you know, because we want to keep it fresh for the listeners. Yep. And I, I know my uh, my budget has grown, at least my, my <laughs> output budget. So I've got all kinds of cool little audio tools now. That's true. Remember, remember when we started, like, what, what did we have? We had just like mics, I think, and they weren't yeah. even they weren't even good mics. <laughs> yeah, they were they were pretty bad mics for bad I mics. think I bought for twenty three dollars, mm-hmm. and then we went to uh, then we really upgraded, and I think we both had Yetis. Yes, that's uh, true. For a while, that's and, true. Uh, and and now we're we're like uh, semi pro. That's right. That's right. I mean, <laughs> we we started with Anchor as the as the platform, and um, you know had a lot of had a lot of challenges with that. And when we tried Zoom and also had some challenges with that and, uh, you know, finally we decided, you know, landed on Riverside, which we're, we're using now. And, uh, it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of trial and error trying to figure out what, you know, what works for you. But, uh, you know, it's been, it's been fun doing that. I would be afraid to go back and listen to some of those first few episodes, <laughs> You know, I, so. I really don't. Like, I think about it and it, like, it was good interviews. I mean, it's like really good content, but I'm like, I don't think I could do it because I don't want to listen yeah. to myself. <laughs> yeah, because I, I think I grabbed some like free music off the interwebs yes, to, yes. to do I, that. And, I remember going through that. Like, you're like, yeah. what does this sound like? I'm like, that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and then we finally got a couple where it's like, yeah, that's pretty good. But, that'll work. Uh, that'll work. But I, I, I still think we have the, uh, the, the best uh, music with uh, Jerry David DeSicca. So. No, no doubt, we were so yeah. fortunate that that Jerry let us use the music because uh, it is. Absolutely. It, I think it really reflects us, and it's also like very different than anything else you'll you'll hear in a a legal innovation podcast. Yeah, yeah, gives gives it a nice uh, Texas based. Uh, podcast sound. It's got, it's got a twang. Even though you were in New Jersey when we started that. That's, that's, that's true. (laughs) But, uh, I was already a a Jerry fan even then. Well, thanks everyone for listening. I think, uh, you know, we four years in and, and we're just getting started. Yes. Thank you to everyone who, you know, takes the time to listen to our podcast on, on innovation and creativity in the legal industry. Uh, it's really been a great ride so far. This week, we decide to dive deep into information security and how it has consumed so much of our lives, both personal and professional, as we rely so much on the internet and cloud computing and storage. So we brought in an expert to guide us through the just this regulatory patchwork of rules across different regions of the world and even different regions here in the States uh, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. We have a talk about who within the legal industry are really even the true experts when it comes to structured and unstructured data. And we even talk about dark data. Ooh. <laughs> Sounds like the start of a really good ghost story, but instead it's just just us geeking out. We'd like to welcome Peter Bauman, CEO and co-founder of ActiveNav. Peter, welcome to the Geek in Review. Pleased to be here. We have talked a number of times on this podcast about privacy, legislation, and regulations, especially, you know, we throw out those, those four letters of, of GDPR, and then we also talk about California's version uh, that they've created on data privacy. So we just thought we would go ahead and just do an entire episode and focus on what's going on here in the U.S. Who knows? We may, sm- may sneak in something abroad as well. <laughs> 
So in the past couple of years, the number of states enacting privacy legislation has really boomed, starting with California and most recently Connecticut, Virginia, Utah, and Colorado. And now Congress is beginning to hold hearings on their own federal legislation, the American Data Privacy and Protection Act. Peter, you've been in the information service industry for decades. What do you make of this recent proliferation of legislation? Well, I think first, Marlene, uh, when somebody says for decades, it's a bit scary, but you are right. It is uh, It is now three decades. So I guess I am qualified for that part, at least. And uh, I should then also say I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an attorney. I'm not a lawyer. So uh, my view is very much from um, on the ground experience of trying to do this with practitioners in, in law firms and, and, and elsewhere. I think this is fascinating. I, I, you know, I'm an entrepreneur in, in the last half of my career. I run small businesses or relatively small businesses. And the last thing we want is red tape and more administration and more bureaucracy uh, holding us back. But I'm all for privacy, privacy regulation. And um, I was just uh, having a chat early on with Greg before, before the radio cast began. And uh, I spent the last nine years in the US. I was living just outside of Washington uh, in Virginia. And so I was a European that went over to the States and I experienced firsthand how um, there was a different approach to personal uh, identifiable information, private information about myself and my family. And uh, it's far more lax in the States. And uh, it, was, it was not unusual to be asked for all kinds of things that I thought were very personal and you wouldn't dream of being asked for, generally speaking, in the UK and Europe. Um, date of birth, um, social security number, now, I appreciate it's a different system. Uh, no one's ever asked me outside of a, a medical situation what my national health, my social security number is in the UK or anywhere else in Europe for that matter. And so that was a little bit of a shock. And then I think the other thing that was interesting was when we had GDPR arrive on, what was it, 25th of May 2018, I had a lot of my friends and a lot of my work colleagues say, oh, gosh, you Europeans, you're luna- you know, lunatics. Why, are you, why do you care so much about all this? Just It doesn't matter. Just share it. Just share it. It doesn't matter. And then, of course, breach after breach after breach came through. And then there was the OPM breach when all our, all our biometric data for all our top security clearance uh, folk is out there somewhere with a, you know, with a bad actor, probably a nation state bad actor. People started to wake up. And so... It's time to catch up in the US, and uh, and it, and therefore I think it's a really good thing. Uh, I think generally we've got to lean into it, and we've got to make sure this is this is really successful. You know, there's there's a lot of bad I call them bad actors, uh, nefarious individuals, people out there who are literally trying to steal your ID, my ID, and organisations' ID, and their, their personnel and their customers every and, day. Uh, Every day, we all know about it, we all read about it, we all live in fear of it, but it's literally happening. And most of us have been breached through one or two of the, the, the major um, you know, consumer data uh, breaches that have taken place. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's great that these things are coming into place, and, uh, but there's clearly a, a need for a federal uh, law um, because it's getting way too complicated um, for, at, a, at a state level and then with uh, individual kind of sectorial requirements, whether it's the legal sector or manufacturing or financial services, there's just too much burden from a, a privacy um, policy perspective. And so we need to kind of raise the bar at a federal level so that uh, it becomes easier for everybody to, to play on uh, kind of on, on equal ground, if you like. Is there something specific that you think uh, is it just the unification of uh, data privacy that needs it to be on a federal level, or is there something else that that the uh, federal legislation or regulation can do that the you know fifty one states in in Washington D.C. can't? Well, I, I, uh, Greg, if I may, I, I kind of look at it from our customers' perspective, and if you're a customer and you're trading internationally, and you're trading with a certain sector, what on earth are you supposed to do? You, want, you, you end up going for the highest bar. And currently, the highest bar is, God forbid, an EU regulation. And so you have your US you know, global businesses seeking to comply with a GDPR. And, uh, and then, largely speaking, US state regulations playing catch up. And obviously, we know that California is kind of either on equal par or, or, or very close or you know, overtaken in parts GDPR. But we have to put uh, U.S. businesses on a, on a fair footing with the rest of the world. And I think what organizations are asking for is one regulation. They can build all their internal processes, 
methodologies and tech, tech stacks to comply with. And, and that's why I think that that just has to happen, just purely from a, a commercial perspective, even before you get into all the, the other data privacy rights and personal views on this and stuff. It's just it's just getting too difficult for uh, business and organizations to comply. Yeah. One regulation to rule them all. <laughs> I, I think so. Exactly. I think so. Yeah. And, you know, I remember in the early days of GDPR, and I'm sure you guys do too, there was a lot of press out there that said, oh, the US doesn't need to comply with this. US won't bother complying with this. Oh, it's only if we have European uh, citizen folk in, in certain places. And we've all seen what's happened. Everyone's got caught. And uh, the, these things are, you know, people travel. I've traveled. And you know, what, what do I cover? I'm a European uh, I've worked in the US, um, people have got my data, you know, what law do we need to govern Peter Bauman on? And, uh, and, you know, and there's millions and millions and millions of people like me, even uh, before you start talking about people crossing states in, in the US. Yeah, yeah, I know, uh, again, we don't necessarily like regulation in, in the US, uh, especially no. businesses, but what are the risks to companies that don't prepare for all of these new data protection policies that, are, that hopefully are coming out? It, it's probably a multi-part answer, I'm afraid to say, actually, Greg. Um, you've got general risks of just not being proactive with your data protection. So if those bad actors, those hackers, if you like, uh, infiltrate your organization network undetected via an unstructured data source, there's nothing stopping them getting hold of confidential client data and matter files. You know, it's all there. It's all there for the taking once you've broken into those networks, unless those files are appropriately governed and locked down encrypted. Um, we know that's not always the case. And of course, when this happens, it's going to lead to a, a bunch of things. You're going to have a loss of confidentiality, trust, data protection is tantamount to the legal industry. Uh, law firms are either full of money and sensitive private information by their very nature, or they have the keys to the money and private and sensitive information. And so you, you just think about the, the kind of reputational risk around that. We impart some of our most sensitive information to law firms, and we empower them and we entrust them. And uh, if they're breached for sloppy or for malpractice or just for not having the right process in place, it's not going to look good. So reputation is everything. Second, I think uh, specifically race related to um, legislation is, is the monetary risk. And so these breaches, they come with great cost. And uh, that cost is a combination of um, the privacy cost. And so you've, you've, you're in breach of whatever regulation it is that you, you're looking to comply with. And you're going to be hit. And we all know what the GDPR ones are. But let's be realistic about this. It's the U.S., penalties that are going to be harder than GDPR. GDPR is largely focused on large organizations. It hasn't really demonstrated its teeth yet. We know, given the US, it's a far more litigious um, society and economy, and therefore, there's going to be far more litigation around this. And so it's going to be extremely costly in terms of penalties. Um, and then finally, you've got a general risk. Uh, large volumes of unstructured data prevent organizations from just doing their job. And uh, I know both my colleagues here today, Greg and uh, Marlene, you know, your roots are in information management, uh, knowledge management, information governance. And uh, you can't run a business if you're, you're, you're kind of in a swamp, if you can't see the good data for the bad data. And ultimately, if you can't derive value, we talk a lot about risk and this, this podcast is going to be about risk. It's one side of the pinwheel. The other side of the pinwheel is value. And the reason we don't talk about value, specifically on unstructured data, is because we can't get through the risk. <laughs> and, and, and so the, those three things are coming at you, you've got, you've got reputation, you've got the penalties and costs of either breach or non-compliance, and then ultimately you can't really run your business correctly with the exponential growth of data if you're not doing anything with it. I'm glad you, you hit on the value because I think we're going to touch on that a little bit later uh, in the podcast, sort of the balance between the, the value and compliance. But, um, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about all of the various state takes on, on privacy. So like how should companies, specifically legal teams, you know, whether they're, they're in-house or outside counsel, how should they prepare to be in compliance with so many unique policies? You know, what steps should they take? 
I, I, I love that. I know that's not a set-up question, Marlene. I, I love it. And for the same reasons we say you need to have a, a, a bar, the appropriate highest bar in terms of privacy regulation, such as GDPR today, you also need to set the same bar on your data. And ultimately, this is all about the data. And you can't protect what you don't know. And so if all organizations, if all legal practices knew exactly what data they had in their networks and their systems, they could then manage it appropriately through its appropriate life cycle, which means that regardless of what regulation they have to comply with, they've got some chance of meeting it. And that's just not the case today. So the, the first argument we would always make is know what you've got. To do that, you need to do something called a data inventory. In the past, it was called an audit. Uh, mapping has been used as a term, but that can be a little bit misleading in this, in particularly in the cyber kind of market. And so we talk about a data inventory, and you need to have an inventory of all of your data assets. That's where, that's where I would start. Talk a little bit more about uh, what you mean by uh, data inventory. And I've, I've heard it referred to, I think we've even had guests on here talk about it as a single source of truth and what that is and you know why it is that organizations should take a, a data inventory and you know, and even kind of broader than that what what kind of repository should they be looking at and how should they do it like how do you even start <laughs> <laughs> it's top secret <laughs> yes it, 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 that's it, why you hire uh, consultants it, it, it can be overwhelming and uh, and and so you know, you'll have heard the expression that we talk about, uh, you know, uh, a single source of truth, a single pane of glass, don't boil the ocean in one go. Th these are all, you know, I, I almost, I've been in this space for so long now, I think they, those, those kind of expressions derive from <laughs> the morass yeah. of unstructured data. Because um, <laughs> you, you hear them and hear them and hear them again. It's like the 80% yeah. of your data is unstructured. You know, these things, you don't even know if they're true anymore. Just everyone talks about it. By the way, I can yeah. talk about that a little bit later. Um, but, um, Historically, and by historically, I mean over the last 10, 15 years, when people have said they need to do you know, a data audit, a data inventory, what they do is they bring in possibly their lawyers. You know, so lawyers may use their own privacy advisory council to, to come in and do it, um, or they may bring others in. Um, equally, they might bring consultants in. Those could be information governance consultants and, and, and similar. And there's lots and lots of them out there in the market. And what they do is they generally interview the business. They'll, they'll get uh, subject matter experts, they'll get some heads, and they'll look at what the flow of the data is, where the most important data, and they'll interview them, and they'll fill out what are commonly known as surveys. It's, it's not a bad thing in that it gives you a relatively high-level, uh, quick and relatively cheap view of what data you've got. The problem with it, it's immediately out of date. The moment that that exercise has taken place, the moment the whiteboards have been wiped clean, that data is, is, is old. You're also at the behest of the human memory. If someone says to me, Peter, what are the important documents you've worked on, you know, just generally in your job? Oh, well, I had to write a board report yesterday. I remember that because I was on it late and it was stressful. Uh, what did you do before that? Um, right. I think, I think I did some kind of proposal. Yeah, I think it was a proposal. What did you do nine months ago? And what did you do two years ago that was really important and still has IP value to the business but is and within the retention schedule? You haven't got a clue. And uh, what about the guy that left uh, that you took over from six months ago? What did his data look like? And so those things are, uh, I, I would say, they're nearly useless a, a day past their kind of uh, you know, production date, if you like. And so for us, a data inventory is actually looking at the data itself. And this is, this is kind of an overwhelming thought. An average organization, a law firm of, say, 500, 750 people are going to have somewhere in the area of probably 30 to 75, maybe more, but 30, 75 terabytes of data. If you take an average kind of par ratio, one to one, um, gigabytes to documents, et cetera, kilobytes to documents, and build it up, for every terabyte, you've got around a million files and documents. So you're talking about somewhere in the 50 million plus. There's no way you can do that without technology. But the technology has to look at all of them. And what it has to do is it has to do it very quickly. And it has to go through a triage process so that you're not wasting time 
And within a matter of hours or days, you've got an inventory of those data assets. Then where it gets really cool is you then map that against the uh, survey process you went through. And then for those, uh, those kind of knowledge management buffs on the call, you start doing clever things like file schema, file plans, taxonomies, and you really start to understand what your data is. But the key thing is you can keep running the data inventory. And so it's a single pane of glass that's always current. And that's, that's a true inventory. And there's very, very few people that I think really understand this in the market. And there's very few organizations that have really done a data inventory and all their assets. What would the cost of something like that be? Because um, I, I imagine that's both both in time and and money. I imagine that is uh, those are a couple of of the hurdles that prevent uh, organizations from from doing exactly what you said. I think Marlene. I think uh, until not that long ago, it was quite prohibitive in in absence of a really good compelling event. And those kind of compel events normally uh, in recent times they've been on breach. So once somebody's been breached, they have no choice. They have to go in and sort it out. They may have a consent order. And if they don't, their business is shut down. Therefore, they don't really care what the cost is. There's an um, accident at the crossroads and we have to put us we have to put a traffic light in then. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. The more common reasons people acted were MA, divestitures, acquisitions, and you've got to split the data. It could be also under some kind of uh, in a governmental order, depending on the, the nature of the content, through to uh, simple things like um, uh, migration programs. So you're moving from this repository to this repository. We don't want to fill our shiny new Ferrari up with horrible, dirty diesel. And, uh, and so that's a good reason to go through the process. What we found in the last year or two, and I'd like to say that we're, we're kind of uh, we're at the front of that, that discussion, is the prices have come down dramatically. So 10, 14 years ago, when we set this business up, you know, a lot of data was two or three terabytes. That was like, oh my gosh, how are we going to handle that? We now have customers in the petabytes. And so that price point has clearly got a Moore's law effect to it, and it's come down dramatically. And it used to be about storage costs. It's not about storage blobs and how much does it cost to pull this data back down or in, in case of a, a litigation requirements and stuff. So you'll pay that off uh, many times over within the first year. Mm -hmm. And are you finding companies are much more comfortable with using either cloud or a hybrid instead of doing everything on-prem? Because I I remember back in the day having to literally mail or FedEx, you know, hard drives from one office to another because we didn't trust it or couldn't handle uh, that much information uh, in, in the cloud at that time. Well, Greg, we still, we still experience that. We have some customers that still either put us in a certain room um, and we have to go install on-prem or they will send us in a certain way and we put it in our safe room and do the work locally. So that does happen, but those are very much the, the exceptions rather than the rule. The vast rule is because of the nature of this data, it has been until fairly recently on-prem because people want to respect their security proxies protocols already in place. And also, I think more so than that, there's a lot of data and if you're going to do anything like textual analytics on that data, you've got to be really close to it. And so it's only with the advent of customers putting their data in the cloud that it provides the solution to put your analytical, your algorithms next to it in the cloud. And so it's more about the, uh, the law of physics, you know, how, how fat's the pipe, than it is actually about a willingness. And I think we've, we all know, we've all seen in our personal lives and our professional lives that very little hasn't now moved to the cloud or won't move to the cloud. And so we basically followed that path. We had a few full starts. When do we build our cloud product? We launched our cloud product just at the back end of last year. And, uh, and until then, all our revenue and all our customers were on-prem. And so now we have some customers that are looking at both solutions because ultimately they're going to migrate across. We have some that are only going to cloud. And then we have some for various reasons, particularly in the federal government, who, who still want to sit within a cloud environment. Within the legal space, it's a, it's a little bit of a mix still. And they're, they're a bit more conservative, uh, as, as we know, uh, by nature. So it really depends where their data is. But then, my, but, but the Microsoft stack is driving them into the cloud hard. And so um, often we're finding that we just piggyback that, that story. What sort of repositories should organizations consider in terms of, of housing the data? And the other question is, so you've gone through the evaluation and you figured out the valuable versus the not valuable. What happens to the stuff that's not valuable? 
Okay, so two questions. First one, where where is it? Well, it's it's unstructured data, right? It's everywhere. <laughs> where you're going to get the eighty twenty gains very quickly. It's going to be remarkably after doing this for fourteen years, they're still in file shares, <laughs> or or the server, the file <laughs> share, as you know, people call them. Uh, it, it's remarkable that that's still a thing, and it demonstrates that people never really completed on on these exercises. And so there's a lot of risk there, and you get a big, quick bang for buck there. Then it starts to become a little bit more nuanced um, because SharePoint became so prolific and people moved from certain types of enterprise content management systems and thought SharePoint was the solution. We know SharePoint just made the problem worse, generally speaking. SharePoint is often right at the top of the list. And, and, then, it, and then it's very much dependent on the industry or the organization in um, within the legal space, you'll find the Microsoft stack is second. You know, obviously SharePoint's part of that, but the broader Microsoft stack, Teams, Exchange, Exchange with a lot of lawyers, you know, they, uh, they're not very good with retention schedules. And so they have uh, an infinite number of emails sitting in their Exchange servers. So that's a classic use case. Go, go clean that data. Um, obviously Teams, Slack, depending on the organization again. And then they may have, well, in the legal sector, you're going to have things like, was it NetDocs, iManage, and they are obviously put in place to manage the data and ensure that it's correctly labeled and meets retention schedules, et cetera, et cetera. But we all know they're reliant on the end user submitting that data, and end users don't like adding metadata. Let's, let's you know, face up to it, world. <laughs> doesn't matter what we do. They don't want to do it. <laughs> and, and so you'll, you'll find a lot of uh, poor quality information, unfortunately, in those kind of proprietary repositories too. And so those would be the biggest hits. And obviously cloud and whether it's cloud, you know, uh, Microsoft Azure 365, Office Docs, or whether it's other um, Google, uh, Dropbox and, uh, and other, it, it's going to be all over those places. Anywhere you shuffle your unstructured data. The way you go through it, and my gosh, Marlene, we've learned this over the years. We, we went through a lot of painful conversations where we'd find really bad data at customers and they just wouldn't delete it. And, you know, defensible destruction and all the legal terms that came in. It's a, and it would be, it's a backup of a copy and it's outside of retention schedule and it's only accessible through an application that's no longer in your policy. <laughs> Think we're perfect or something. Yeah, yeah, but we can't delete it. We might need it. Or oh, I don't want to be the person that deletes it. So we came, we came up, uh, I'm sure it wasn't just us, but we came up with workarounds. And one of the workarounds there is you identify that information and there's a triage process. We won't have time to go through it today. Um, but there's a triage process where you, you get the easy wins and you, you work your way down until you really have to do the textual analytics on the final subset of data. But you take those slam dunk because we've done billions and billions and billions of files and therefore, the risk is so low that they're wrong, and you put those into quarantine. And if nobody screams in a year, you hit the delete button. Where you have resistance, you allow the end user to claw the data back, but with a form they have to fill in a fee, and no one ever does it. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't. That's a, I'm, I'm being a little bit, you know, flippant in my my response. Um, no, but that's, that's, that's spot what on. Happens. It is spot yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then as you get into the more interesting data you know you get into sensitive data you get into ipr you get you know whatever the business is uh, in, in in the world of uh, you know law obviously case files uh, matters uh, is it on hold is it off hold etc cetera, etc cetera. um then you just build different rules and requirements around it and triage the data um separately and obviously you, you're going to spend a little bit more time and therefore money because it, it's got more value associated with it so I know you have spoken about dark data. Tell us a bit about dark data. What is its relationship to unstructured and structured data? You know, what sort of risks does dark data pose to organizations and how should we reduce that risk? Yeah, I'm, glad, I'm glad you bring that up because I, I should have mentioned it at the front of the call. So our, our strap line is zero dark data, first of all. And what do we mean by that? We want to take our customers to a position of zero dark data. And that comes right back to the front of our conversation. If you have no dark data in your organization, oh my gosh, you're in a good place. You're going to meet all those regulatory requirements. If you are hacked, 
the you've got a, a smaller footprint. You know, the threat attack footprint is far far smaller, and you're more, more likely to to have the right process, lifecycle management, retention schedules, etc. On it. So for us, dark data it could be within structured, but we're all focused about unstructured. It's largely in un, unstructured data. It's all those things that you just don't want out there. A really simple example are things like password files. And so some of the most kind of well-known breaches, the bad actor gets into a network, and you know, this, this is public available through the Pullman Institute, you know, on average are around 300 days in the network before they're discovered. They're not looking for your iPad and the flat screen TV. They're looking for the juicy stuff and the juicy, they're looking for your crown jewels. And the crown jewels mean different things, different organizations. One of them, which is dark data, are password files that haven't been correctly disposed of, locked down, and not for malicious reasons. Somebody who's moved a load of data, IT guy just said, I'll put it there, I'll delete it later, forgot to delete it. Excel spreadsheet, Word document, stuff full with password files. They find those files and, hey, presto. And uh, you know, there, there's no shortage of examples of where that's happened. And so for us, a password file would be a good example of dark data that's out there, um, never mind PII and, uh, and all the other kind of stuff. So as far as um, unstructured versus structured, well, you know, when, when I get asked this, I, I always get, uh, do get a bit flippant. I say, well, it's kind of in the name, stupid. <laughs> 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 and, and yet, it's remarkable how most of the market is still focused on spending a lot of dollars and a lot of time sorting their structured data out. It's what they know. It's what they know. Thank you, Greg. Why is that? Well, it's because what they know is because it's how they know what to do with it because it's structured um, and it's where they feel they can get the biggest bang for the buck. Now, in fairness, there's a view that they've probably got some of their most valuable information because they've gone to the energy and effort and cost to put it into a structured database, for example. So they, the expectation is it's going to be quite valuable. But um, that's not always the case. It's largely, I think, and I, I, I do have a self-interest here, I think it's largely because the other problem, the elephant in the room, is so great and they literally don't know what to do and how to start with it. And they don't think there's easy ways to deal with it. And so let's just focus on structured um, for now. And I know I'll get a lot, of, uh, a lot of angry responses to that, but that's our experience. Structured data largely sits in a database environment. It's going to have some columns and some labels and, you know, think Oracle, think, you know, SQL servers, et cetera, et cetera. And you should have the ability through, uh, you know, your own SQL queries and uh, search capability to find most of that data. That's the beauty of it being structured. Un unstructured has no obvious framework associated with it. And it, as, as per our earlier conversation, it can sit in all kinds of different repositories. Some of them may be semi-structured, like Salesforce or some of those content management systems, but even there, they're largely unstructured because they're free text files. And so I like to think of unstructured being more about uh, data that's associated with humans' conversations. And uh, certainly from a textual point of view, you know, it's the customer support desk, it's the litigation file, it's the Slack chat, it's where you have a human interaction. And of course, you can then add to it uh, rich media files, video, audio, imagery, et cetera. Um, that's also largely unstructured. The, we talked a little earlier about the percentages. And um, forever, we've been saying 80% of an organization's data is unstructured. And I was at the RSA conference last week, and I was with a, a data analyst. Uh, I won't main, mention them, be unfair, I think at this point. But I said, where, you know, is that still real? Where does it actually come from? Is it just one of those, like, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, like an old wives' tale, you know, it's just gone round and round in the market and everyone now believes it. And the individual said to me, well, we've actually just recently done some research and, uh, and they've it's got an access urban, to... It's urban legend. An <laughs> urban legend or an urban myth. That's right. That's what I was looking for. And uh, it's actually much higher than 80%. <laughs> that's what so, I was going to say. It must have gotten more since then, right? Yeah. It's much higher. And, and so what we don't know, and I, I put a plea out to market uh, analyst researchers, what we don't know is what's the correlation or, or propensity of being hacked in your unstructured versus your structured and the risk of the, you know, the dangerous stuff being found in, in one of those data sets. Um, I don't think enough research has been done on that yet. But we know that most of the dark data, the unknown data is in unstructured. So the guess is it's there but there's not empirical evidence to support that just yet. 
So what about uh, data protection assessment and how is it that, say, a legal department should identify their company's data risk? Yeah, um, I think GDPR is a good way to try and answer this, Greg. And when you talk about a, a data impact assessment, data protection impact assessment is a DPIA um, for <laughs> to try and make our lives easier, nice short acronym. Um, and uh, so I'll give you an example. When when you If you're following GDPR rules to, to the letter, um, when you create a new project that's likely to involve some high-risk sensitive data, PII, um, then you need to go through a DPIA process. What is that? Uh, I'll, I'll just rattle through some of the, the, the main bullets, if you like. So who in your organization is going to be involved in that process? The specific risky data that they'll be handling, the rationale for why they need this data. And this is really, I love this one, the rationale. Why do you need that? Well, because it's there. Now, that's not a good enough reason. Because if it's there and you merge it with other data, you can start to create identities, of course. So you, the rationale is really, really important. Which of your business's processes will it be part of? And the specific risks to the rights and freedoms of the data subjects, you know, us, associated with the risky data, and then obviously what, what tools you're going to use, et cetera, et cetera. And so then who who's responsible for that? Well, one of the things GDPR did, um, rightly or wrongly, was it, it, <laughs> it created 50,000 DPOs. <laughs> it, it created this, this data protection officer function, which the US has, I, I think, largely been frowning on. Do we need one? I'm not sure. Well, we have one in Europe. And and uh, under the regulations in, in the US, um, largely they're falling under the CPO, if, if, if I may. Again, I'm not an attorney, um, but they're largely privacy attorney. They're largely falling under the CPO function. And there, But there are DPOs in the US as well. I've met plenty of them. And so that person is an expert when it comes to um, you know, complying with G GDPR. And so, again, uh, you know, how, how do you how, how on earth do you deal with all this stuff? Well, you've got to know what the data is that you've got. And, you know, you've got to do effectively a data inventory. So every time you do one of these exercises, projects involving a lot of sensitive information, personally identifiable information, you need to have at source what the data is about and it needs to be in the correct places. And so this, this is a you know, this is a headache. And it comes back to our earlier point. Start at you know, ground zero, 101, understand what the data is, and then all these other processes should be a little easier. Does that help, uh, Molly? Yes. And in fact, it's it's interesting. You you touched upon the the evaluation of need for a, a CPO. Um so it segues nicely into my next question. You know, I'm sure you've heard often IT teams want to control all things security related, but uh, this is really a concern for legal teams as well. So what do you see as the role of the legal department versus IT or outside consultants and privacy compliance? Every, every, it's, it's forcing people to work together across oh, the organization. No. <laughs> I know, watch out. We found our problem. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but as we also know, not quickly enough, it's also creating new silos and power battles in most organizations. Maybe if I start there first, I think one of the interesting things is, and my respect to any records managers on, on the call, on the podcast, um, who really understands the data? in your average you know, Western organization, a records manager. They, they've got decades and decades, centuries of experience in how to manage data. Largely, it was physical data and moved into the world of digital and became totally out of control. But those are the people that really understand data and they can make the biggest gains in the data. Who are the people driving this discussion? It's a mixture of legal, as in legal counsel, general counsel, CISO, uh, security, uh, privacy, compliance, uh, a little bit of IT. And how often do you see records managers in the same room when they're devising their plan and strategy? It's very rare. Yeah. <laughs> it's, very, <Zero>. it's <laughs> very, very rare. And, it, and it's really sad. You know, a lot of our, our first half of our life at ActiveNav was really dealing with uh, records managers, you know, experts in the field of data, uh, effectively data scientists, you know, they, they understand how data works. In the last few years, it's largely been um, dealing with people who have a lot of power and authority 
and uh, you know are trying to meet certain rules, regulations, requirements, but with very little understanding of the data and how the users and the business use that data. And so I, I kind of start there because it, it demonstrates that we're not there yet. We've got to get those people together. And when you do get them together, it's fantastic. It all, you know, you, you've got the right discussion in the room, and the right there's chance of success. And, and Peter, so you, yeah. you know, you've talked about the the CPOs and the DPOs, uh, these these officer level jobs that are out there, and then you talk about all of the intelligence that's in your records department in this area. Are those two completely different entities within within an organization? Um, because I can tell you, I've you know, having been an old records manager myself. There's the technology part of it, and then there's the the records keeping and the process part of it, and very rarely do those two cross. So, do you? How do you advise that you take the intelligence from your records folks and apply it to these, you know, high level jobs of DPO or CPO? So it, it's not always easy, uh, Greg. I guess we're blessed because we've been doing it long enough that the software actually does some of it. It, it does that, that that transition because we've already got all that knowledge and experience from the records groups on um, retention schedules, for example. That's that's kind of inherently built into our thinking and our software, which means that if they're not in the room, it comes up as a, as a, a feature or a discussion or a, a possibility capability. Um, however, you still need to make sure that you're applying the appropriate uh, policies and retention schedules and alike to to that data. So um, I think I think it's fair to say that generally it's frustrating and uh, it, uh, it it needs to change for for the market really to, to get a grip of this and they need to bring people in that understand the data and have been managing and worrying about just the data and how users interact with it uh, and then what's wonderful of course for that community for the records management they now have people who care and are interested at an executive level all the way up to you know board members non exec. There'll be people responsible from ESG, governance, cyber, and they now have a voice at, and they, they should have a voice at the top table. So I think, it, I think it's for both parties to, to recognize the value of, uh, of, of each other and, uh, and the relevant uh, knowledge they have. And what's remarkable is, you know, to, to, to really show how crazy it is sometimes, we, we can do deals on either side of a business. You know, I'm not saying we do two deals in the same business, but one day we could do a deal with, you know, customer A on the record side and, and the next day with customer B purely on a privacy compliance uh, cyber side. And, you know, the, the, the two should never meet. And, that, and that's just that's just crazy because the benefits are clearly across. Now, um, it's a little bit more complex and nuanced than that because both parties have familiarity with different technology and tools. And so uh, if you're talking to a cyber person, they're going to be very familiar with cyber tools that will reach into some discovery capability. If you talk to records, they'll be very familiar with records and classification, data classification tools that by default are discovery, but won't have some of the cyber components. And so you, know, you, can, you can see why sometimes that gets a little bit difficult because customers don't want 50 tools doing similar things and they're trying to trying to find out which one is the right solution, purpose built to solve their problem, and that that is a, a, a genuine issue that, that I think the market faces. Yeah, one of the things that you had mentioned earlier, you kind of is sticking in my brain right now, and that is to understand why it is that you're 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 doing they're creating the data, and it it almost reminds me of we had a guest on a couple of weeks ago that talked about. Uh, court forms and that, you know, there's this process, but if you don't know what you're doing, you're going to be creating things or exposing things that you don't have to expose. And it may actually put you in a higher risk just because you're following these steps, but you don't know why it is that you're doing, you're not asking uh, the right questions there. So that, I, I think that's something that a lot of us don't think about. And I think that, you know, the chiefs come with it. Uh, there's certain knowledge about why things are and, and, and aren't exposed. So do the records folks. So, uh, you know, the more collaboration I think you have on this, the uh, especially when you talk about the why, uh, why would you expose that information or create that information? 
I, I think that's a great question, isn't it? I think you're right, Greg. It's, it's the question to ask, why do you need that information? And uh, do you really need it? And that, that's... Well, because the checklist says we need to. That's or, right. Or we've always so, done it this way. Because, you know, I might need it someday, like to draft oh, some... Oh, God, yeah. I hate that one. <laughs> How do you explain the relationship between innovation and information security? You know, do you see them in opposition to one another or do they work in tandem? And I'm thinking, you know, in terms of both data as well as any other types of innovation. I mean, if you're bringing in new technology, for example, or a new workflow process, do they work together or are they kind of at each other? I think, Jen, they need to work together because particularly if they work together early on in a program, then they got some chance of innovating and changing and making things for the better. I think the problem is you've got a bit of an oil and water issue going on there because one is just worried about the perimeters and security and locking stuff down. And uh, the other one is worried about the nuance of the data and meeting certain you know, rules and policies and regulations. And so by default, you've got a, a slightly different interest coming into that, that discussion. Now, I think I'm, I'm an eternal optimist, which for my, uh, you know, for my, my flaws, if you like, <laughs> We're very early in the world of data privacy. We're quite early in the world of data security. You know, and when we started this business 14 years ago, I never thought we would be doing this thing called post-breach data analysis, discovery, long tail of post-breach to meet a privacy regulation. That was like, what's that? You know, it was more about storage savings because <laughs> they were very expensive. And so you can see here the market. So we're very early. You know, we're only at the toddler stage, really, in our maturity of the market. And what's happening is we as individuals are learning about the risks of privacy and ID and theft and, and, and all the rest. That then filters into the workplace. So now we have everybody kind of aware of it. And we're all going through you know, security training on a, in a very regular basis to avoid um, you know, ransomware and phishing and what have you. So everyone's becoming more educated, which I think bubbles up eventually to these strategic type discussions you, I think you're referring to, Marlene, when there are opportunities to, to put these smart people together and reinvent the way that we lock the doors down or keep the doors sufficiently open. And so I think it's, it, it's beginning to happen. We see it because those people are now around the same table. I just saw it last week at RSA, um, you know, what was always a cyber conference over in San Francisco. It's now probably 20% privacy, and they weren't in the room four years ago. And now they're there. So there's a recognition it's the data stupid because we're going to get hacked. And so there is a, there is a relationship <laughs> developing there. So I think maybe that answers your question. I think the reality is that it, it, it doesn't happen that often, but I think it will more in the future. Mm -hmm. Well, Peter, we usually ask all of our guests uh, what we call our crystal ball question, and so I'm gonna we're gonna ask you to pull out your own crystal ball and kind of peer into the future for us, say the next two to five years, and uh, let us know what you, what you're seeing as far as uh, you know data security and what you think uh, the the future holds for us. Yeah, and again, at the risk of being self-serving, but I think it has to be. The, the the world of structured data is beginning to get its act together for reasons we discussed earlier. I already thought it had its act together, but apparently it didn't, and it's had to go through a whole you know reinvention. That's largely either underway, happened, or you know is about to complete and, and be maintained. Looking out, until we control our unstructured data, um, we're never going to solve this problem. We're always going to be breached. We're always going to be hacked. There's always going to be somebody smarter than the guys trying to keep us keep them out. And we, as we just discussed, 80, 90% of that data is unstructured. Your dark data predominantly resides in unstructured. And so we have to be moving the market towards solving that problem. And what I love then, what I really get excited is back to that pinwheel. Once you've got the data under control, you can start to leverage the data to actually drive what you care about. If you're a charity, if you're a law firm, if you know adding value back to your, your customers, giving money back to uh, the charity, you know, to the actual charitable cause, rather than burning it up in management costs. If you're a bank, you know, new financial instruments that you didn't realize the market was asking you for because you never managed to analyze the data correctly. And so 
I, I think that's the real crystal ball. That's the innovation. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I think I'll hopefully I'll be long retired <laughs> because it will happen quickly and I'll be retired. <laughs> but it, it may still be 10, 20 years out. But ultimately, it's no dark data in your systems. And if it is there, it's immediately found because you have the right tools to catch it. And, uh, and then it's leveraging the data for the reason you have the data and, and nothing else. All right. Well, Peter Bauman from ActiveNav, uh, thank you very much for coming in and doing this whole <laughs> whole interview, whole show on uh, on data security. It's something that, that we've been wanting to do for a while. So thanks, Peter. Thank you. A pleasure. Thank you, both. Well, we definitely put the geek in the geek in review this week, and and so extra geeky. But I mean, you look at you look at IT departments anymore, and it's almost like they're you know it used to be take care of the computers, take care of the network. Now it's it's almost like a third or or maybe half of their job is security. So, uh, I mean, this is just the nature of the beast now. Yeah, it's it's pretty much every decision you make is you know has security concerns in it. I mean, if we're looking at buying you know, a resource, there's always security that, you know, we have to go through and steps you have to check to make sure that that's going to be in line with, with what you need to do. It touches all of us, you know, whether you're in that specific space or not. Uh, We all have security training every year about what to do and what not to do. This I think is critical conversation and very, very timely. Yeah, I, I agree. So thanks again to Peter Bauman, the CEO and co-founder at ActiveNav for taking the time to uh, geek out with us and talk security. And of course, thanks to all of you for geeking out with us and taking the time to listen to the Geek and Review podcast. If you enjoy the show, share it with a colleague. We'd love to hear from you. So reach out to us on social media. I can be found at M on Twitter. And I can be reached at Glambert on Twitter. Or you can leave us a voicemail on the Geek and Review hotline at 713-487-7270. And as always, the music you hear is from Jerry David DeSica. Thank you, Jerry. Jerry was geeking out with us too, I'm sure. He was. Thanks, Jerry. All right, Marlene, I will talk to you later. Okay, bye-bye. Devil's back on the ball.